So as many of you know, I, I enjoy, uh, enjoy sports, particularly I enjoy team sports and football and college football. And tomorrow night is the national championship, Alabama, Clemson. I'm sure it's going to be a great game, uh, a great offense against an incredible defense. And recently, Nick Saban, coach of Alabama, was asked what makes his defense so effective. And he answered the question by saying this. He said, players need to trust and respect the fact that if I, so if I'm a player, so he's speaking as a player, so if I do my job and we have, that gives us the best chance of being successful. So players need to trust and respect the fact that if I do my job, we have the best chance of being successful I don't have to make every play. I just need to make the plays I'm supposed to make in the gap I'm supposed to make them and trust the guy next to me will do the same. And it really is amazing how important trust is in team sports to the success of a, of a team. And there's no such thing as a championship team unless the players actually do trust one another players need to trust the coaches they need to trust their fellow teammates they need to trust the system um, that the coaches the game plan and all of that uh, in baseball uh, players have positions and they need to trust that they're going to cover their positions they need to know that a specific individual player or teammate is going to cover the base I need to trust that as the shortstop that the first baseman is going to cover first base when I get the grounder and I go to throw the guy out. I need to trust that the first baseman is going to actually be where he's supposed to be. Uh, in basketball, it's the same thing. You have to trust the play and the players that they understand the spacing on the court, that they understand the, the play that's going to be executed, that you're going to trust that they're going to run a specific screen at a certain place and the player is going to make a certain cut at a certain time. And they're going to be there, and you need to trust everyone on the court so that the team can get the best shot possible. In football, it's the same thing. The quarterback needs to trust his left guard, his left guard who's guarding his blind spot. I'm not his guard, his tackle, actually. He needs, to, he needs to make sure that the left side of the offensive line is going to block the rusher. If the quarterback doesn't trust them, He's going to spend more time looking at the blitz and looking at the pass rush rather than looking downfield to see uh, if a receiver is open. He'll never complete a pass if he doesn't trust his offensive line. And, and, and for me personally, like one of my glory days uh, moments of personal athletics uh, back when I was in, in high school, uh, my senior year playing soccer, and uh, I was the forward, I was the striker. Uh, on, on the team, and, and there were, I just remember this moment. It's just, again, one of those glory day type moments, cool moments that I've just never forgotten. Uh, the right wing, he's coming up the right wing with the ball, and, and I'm kind of in the middle of the field, and, and I make my run toward the top of the penalty box uh, where I'm supposed to be because uh, at some point he needs to cross the ball over to me to have a chance to score, and, and in this play, I had a defender right on me. This guy was right with me on my left shoulder. And so that I'm making my run the way I'm supposed to. And, and I look over and the, the right wing, he crosses the ball like he's supposed to. And without thinking, without even looking really, um, in that moment, I played dummy. 
which is something very normal and easy for me to do. But in soccer lingo, what that means is that instead of taking the ball and stopping it, trapping it, turning, kicking, like possessing the ball, instead of doing that, I actually just let it go between my legs. I let it pass by me. I played the dummy. And the reason why is that I just knew that my left wing was going to be back there. Uh, I hadn't looked. Uh, I hadn't turned my head to look. I just knew he was supposed to be there. And so in that moment, I let it go because I had a defender on me. Turns out he didn't, my left wing didn't, and he actually scored in that moment. And uh, the reason I remember that, that play so well is that the defender who was covering me, as soon as the play was over, he looked at me. And he were walking up the field together, and he said, how did you know that he was there? Because he knew I hadn't turned to my left to see if anyone, anyone on my team was there, my left wing or anyone else. And just as cocky as I could say it, I said, I just knew. I just knew. But the, the truth is, I knew he would be there. Whether I had physically, visibly seen him, I knew he would be there because me and my left wing had played together for a few years. Uh, we knew our positioning, we knew our spacing, we knew our runs, we knew where we were supposed to be. I knew he would be there. I trusted that he would be where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to do. And because of that, I was able to just let the ball pass by, and he took it, and we scored that goal. So my, my point is how important trust is to athletics, to teams, to winning, and, and, all good, and all that good stuff. And nothing good happens in life without trust. Trust is vital for everything. It's vital in war. Uh, the generals, the commanders, they need to trust that the soldiers are going to carry out the orders. They need to, uh, the, the soldiers need to trust that that really is the best plan uh, that's being given to them. If they don't trust it, they're going to go into it half-heartedly and it decreases the, the ability for that operation, that mission, that battle to be successful. The soldiers on the field, they have to trust that the ammunition is going to be replenished. During, during combat. And if they don't trust that, they're going to conserve ammo uh, unnecessarily instead of eliminating the enemy in that moment. In the, work, in the workforce or in, in just a business and career, an owner needs to trust his employees. He needs to trust that they're not going to embezzle money. He needs to trust that they're, not, they're, they're actually going to put in a good day's work. Um, it's the same in marriage. Trust is vital. It's hard, impossible to have a healthy, thriving, growing, good marriage if one of the spouses doesn't trust the other with the money or otherwise. So you can see how important trust is in all areas of life, and that is particularly true in church life. And so um, the reason I'm talking about teams and teammates and teamwork and trust this morning is because I'm trying to frame a discussion uh, for a new sermon series that we're starting today, um, and it's a sermon series on what it means to be part of a church. What does that mean? And, and consider this, that Jesus himself said that the gates of hell will never prevail, never prevail, cannot prevail over the church. Um, Paul wrote in Romans that we are more than conquerors. In those types of uh, verses, in, in those principles and those truths that we find in Scripture, don't simply apply to the church universal. Those are intended for the local church. 
So what I take from that and what that means is that the church is made for victory. Not just the universal church, but the local church. We are here to win. We're here to win for the, for the good of others. We're here to win the lost to Christ, that they may have faith in the Savior, that they may come to know the Lord. We're here to, to win uh, in every aspect of, of life, to have victory. It's so the question then is, how do we do that? How do we as a body meant an intended purpose and designed by God for victory and to win? How do we go about doing that? And it's through teamwork. Teamwork is how we make church work. But here's the truth. Teamwork does not happen without trust. Trust is imperative for team to work, for church to work well and for victory to take place. And trust, as vital as it is for success, it's not something that just naturally happens. Trust is typically not something that we just simply grant to an individual. Typically, trust is something that's earned and it's earned over time. Uh, in order to develop trust, it requires a tremendous amount of effort and time and diligence to build trust. Um, some other things about trust to think about it is that it's usually the result of people, and, and I'm referring in the context of church, of people showing that they are committed to one another. Showing that they're committed to the same standard for life, the same goals for life, the same purpose for life. And trust is something that develops over time as we practice it, so as we do it, as we show it, as we demonstrate our commitment, it's something that takes place over time through repetition. So we're doing it every day, every week, over a year, over time, and people are seeing that we're actually committed. It takes place as we uh, live a life of sacrifice and selflessness where we show that we're true to our commitment. We're not wishy-washy. We're not just going to be self-centered. We're actually applying ourselves toward that which we're committed to. Trust develops when we show ourselves to be trustworthy. Uh, as we show ourselves to be faithful and committed. As we show ourselves to be good teammates, good churchmates, uh, as we show our fellow believers that we do life with that we're fulfilling our roles and fulfilling our obligations, that we actually have each other's back, that we're actually there for each other, not just when it's easy, but when it's uh, inconvenient, that we're there for each other during the hard times and the good times. And so it takes time and, and development, but as more and more believers, as we show that we are committed fully committed and faithful to one another, to the same goal, the same standard, the same purpose. As that takes place, trust begins to rise. And as tr trust increases among God's people within a church by God's grace, let me tell you, the sky's the limit. Like there is nothing that we cannot do because we are more than conquerors and the gates of hell cannot prevail. And so when we trust each other to do what we say we're going to do and to do what God has asked us to do, that we're going to love one another as we're supposed to do, there's nothing that we can accomplish by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Nothing. In other words, greater things are possible. 
So, because this is a sermon, I'm going to ask you to turn and open in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to spend a little bit of time there uh, this morning. It's in the Old Testament. It's right between the book of Ezra and the book of Esther. And we're going to spend our time briefly looking at, the, at a story that you're going to find in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10. And what it's just an amazing story. It just teaches us how important it is for believers for us to be committed to one another. And the Bible, it does describe, it describes the relationship among believers not as something that's to be like kind of casual or trivial or loose. No, that relationships among believers is to be this tight, strong bond. The, the word that the Bible would use to describe and define what the relationship is for believers is covenant. That we're to be in covenant with one another. We're in a covenant relationship with one another. That What that means is that we are partaking or taking an oath and we promise to live a certain way, to be faithful to one another, and to be completely committed to serving the Lord together side by side and fulfilling the mission that he would have us to fulfill in this world. Um, the local church is, in essence, a covenant partnership. And there's a really specific reason why I want to use those words. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The, the word bound in that verse means yoked. And that's covenant language. It, the, the word means to be fastened together, joined together. So imagine taking two two-by-fours and you nail them together, you screw them together, and you glue them together. Like they've been fastened, they've been joined, they've been harnessed together in such a way that the two two-by-fours in essence become one. That's what covenant is. And we see this type of language throughout scripture. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, Verse 24, it's right after God has married Adam and Eve, the first wedding ever. And right after that, it says in Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. So there's that covenant language. They're joined, they're fastened, they're bound, they're yoked together in it's to such a degree and in such a way that the two become one. And in a sense, that is particularly what should take place in church. That, that is the, the kind of relationship, I mean, clearly different um, uh, in church as opposed to marriage. But the language is the same, that we are to be one. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 17, the, the night before he is to be crucified. He prays to God the Father on behalf of us, on behalf of his believers, his followers, his disciples, on behalf of the church, on behalf of churches. This is what Jesus prays in verses 20 through 21. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, 
even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So this is an amazing prayer. This is Jesus' heart for us. Not only that we would be one with him, so in covenant with God, but that we would be one with one another. That's the word that he uses, that may they all be one. May we all be one, that we may all be in covenant with one another. And this takes place through the gospel. It is by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that not only are we forgiven of all of our sin, but we who were once not a people, now become the people of God. Singular, not the persons of God, but the people of God. God's design for the local church is oneness, unity, covenant. God's desire is that we would promise to love each other, that we would promise to have each other's back, that we would help carry each other's burdens, that we would weep with one another and rejoice with one another, that we would disciple one another and speak truth into our hearts, that we'd hold each other accountable, that we would build each other up, that we would use our gifts and our talents for the common good of the church and that we would be fully committed to strive side by side to further the mission, that we would further the gospel together as one. Why? So that the world may know that he is from the Father, that the world would know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the light of the world, our Lord, our King, our gracious God. So it's all about what I'm calling covenantship, that we are to be partaking and enjoying of covenant partnership, covenantship, and that is what it means to be part of a local church. So I want to ask just a couple of questions here. Do you want to maximize the blessings, the life that God has for you? Do you want to enjoy all of the blisses, the richness of life that God has in store for you? Uh, or do you want to actually see and do greater things? Do you want to be part of things that are miraculous and supernatural, eternal and glorious? And if you answer yes to any or all of those questions, then that means that we need to embrace covenant partnership with one another. We need to jettison this tendency that we have to be lone wolf, lone ranger type Christians and adopt what is a better way of life. And that is building trust with one another. Building trust with one another by showing that we are fully committed to one another. And so that's what we are getting into in this sermon series, and we're hoping to unpack this really well for everyone over the next few weeks. But with that long introduction, I want to just camp out just for a little while in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, and just to kind of bring everyone up to speed with what's going on in, in the life of Israel up to this point for several centuries. <clears throat> Israel uh, has been disobedient to God. Uh, they've rebelled God. God warned them. He said, stop, get it straight, get it right. They refused to listen. And so what God did, he raised up these nations, these enemies, uh, to discipline 
Israel and so uh, nation empires would come in and eventually Jerusalem was sacked the wall around the city was destroyed the temple was destroyed and the people were exiled out of the very land that God had given to them but God is good God is gracious God is compassionate uh, he would not turn back on the covenant that he had with his people so he slowly started to restore the people back into the land and the people started moving back into what the, the nation what we call Israel um, and they move back they rebuild the temple they rebuild the wall so we give them credit they're, they're taking steps in the right direction however they're not really fully back to where they're supposed to be they're not all the way spiritually to the place where they're supposed to be and so this is where we pick up the action in Nehemiah 8 we read in verses 1 and 2 and all the people gathered as one man in the square which was in front of the water gate and they asked Ezra the scribe bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month so the seventh month is a big deal the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is the biggest month of the year for the nation of Israel this is when they're supposed to observe um, the temple of uh, I'm sorry the feast of trumpets it's also the month where Yom Kippur the day of atonement the biggest day of the year takes place it's also the month in which to celebrate the feast of booths or feast of tabernacles and so it's a big month um, but at the time we get to Nehemiah 8 it's been several it's been many 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 generations since Israel has celebrated and observed these observances that God himself had instituted and commanded them to do but we give them credit they're taking step in the right direction they're they're now looking to to try to be obedient to do what God has called them to do and so they've gathered all together as one and in this gathering they asked better than Ezra Ezra the scribe to to read God's word to them and in verse 3 we we read that he reads to them and it says that specifically he read from early morning to mid day he reads the Bible to them from early morning to midday and in verse 6 the people it says that they're blessing God they're lifting hands they're um, bowing before the Lord so this is a long worship service is what it is it's at least four hours five six maybe seven hours long it is a huge long service so I never want to hear anyone complain about the length of our service and then in verses 7 and 8 uh, the priests are walking through the crowd and it says that they're explaining God's Word so Ezra is reading God's Word and the priests are teaching the people what it means so not only that they're hearing it but so that they may have an understanding of it and as the people come to grips with what God's Word actually says it tells us in verse 9 that they begin to grieve they they begin to mourn over what they're hearing they're filled with massive conviction and here's why these people were unfamiliar with God's Word 
And all of a sudden, they come face to face with the greatness of God, how glorious He is, and, and how magnificent and how powerful He is. And, and they start hearing these stories about how good and generous and kind God has been specifically to them as His people. And they, they hear these stories about how much God loves them and, and how God has redeemed them and how God has blessed them and provided and protected over time. And now he's bringing them back into this land that they don't deserve. And, and they're, they're hearing what God has commanded, like God has instructed a certain kind of life. And, and God has told them, he's like, do these things and avoid these things. And as they're hearing all of this, they're, they're seeing, they're coming to grips with just how short they fall of his standard of his glory. In other words, they come face to face with the reality and the heaviness of their sin. So the people are overcome with remorse and with conviction. And, that is, and that's the right response. Like we should be grieved. We, we see King David grieved and mourning over sin in the Old Testament. Like This is the response. Like Peter in the New Testament, when he realized that he had uh, been unfaithful to Jesus in those last hours, he was filled with remorse and, and repentance. It's the right response. But then we read that Ezra he saw the people in their grief and in their despair, and he says to them in verse 10, Do not be grieved. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, be happy, for though you are weak, for though you are weak in your, in your sin, God is strong in his grace. Even though you're weak in your sin, God is strong in his grace he's merciful he's compassionate he's a god who's willing to forgive so anyone who believes anyone who repents of sin and and gives their life to the lord they're forgiven of all sin it the, the ledger is wiped clean the red is removed sin is removed as far as the east is from the west so that's a call for joy is what ezra is saying if you believe, be joyful, mourn for your sin, and but just be joyful that God loves you and that he forgives you. And that's the gospel. The gospel is a call to joy. At, at Anthem Church, we don't have what we call an order of service. We have what we call an order of celebration. And it's particularly because of this verse. When we gather, we want to sing with joy and gratitude and exuberance because of the gospel. Because it is an opportunity for us to to respond to the Lord with with joy so I do ask do, do you know this joy do you know this joy for yourself the rest of Nehemiah chapter 8 and all of Nehemiah chapter 9 is all of Israel gathered together they're worshiping God they're they're praying they are fasting, they're confessing sin to God, they're, they're praising Him for His greatness. Uh, pretty much all of chapter 9 is a song that is declaring God's greatness and His goodness. It's a psalm which um, the, the people together sing and just recite with one together, a psalm where that traces the history of Israel with God. 
how that if you were to read it, and I would invite you and urge you to read uh, Nehemiah 9, it's just a, a history of Israel, a history of redemption, where God brings them out of bondage in Israel, in Egypt, excuse me, how God brought them out of slavery, and out of bondage and affliction, uh, uh, out of tyranny in Egypt, brings them and gives them this wonderful good land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he's providing and protecting, and despite all of God's goodness, they rebel, they turn their backs on God, and, and instead of being obedient to God, they begin to disobey and to just fade away from where they're supposed to be in relationship to God. And God warned them, he's like, get it right, get it straight, get back on track, and they wouldn't listen. So then God raised up these enemies, and God disciplined them, God punished them, he exiled them out of the land. But then God, because he's gracious and he's not slow, if ever, never, and actually impossible for him to forget his covenant. So he shows loving kindness to his people and he restores them out of that exile back into the land. Not because they deserve it. In fact, God treats them not as they deserve. He's gracious to them. Didn't leave them where they were and in despair. He rescued them once again from their plight and overcome by great joy for all that God has done, for all that God is, for all of God's grace toward them. Look at what Israel says in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38. It says, now because of all this we are making an agreement in writing because of how good God is, because of how great he's been to us, because of how much we've been blessed, how much we benefit from God's mercy toward us. We're making a formal written oath. We're taking a formal oath to do something. And the question then is, what are they agreeing to? And that's what chapter 10 is all about. Verses 28 and 29 summarize what it is that they're agreeing to in writing. It says, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land of, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. This is what they're agreeing to in writing. And, and then in verse 32, it actually says they agree to contribute toward the work of God. And, and pretty much the rest of chapter 10 is spelling out the tithes and the offerings that everyone is agreeing to provide and contribute to the house of God and to the work of God and that everything that needs to be done. So the people are taking a pledge. They're making a covenant with one another. They're putting things on paper and then they're putting their Herbie Hancock down on that piece of paper. 
they are entering into a covenant partnership with one another and making a promise, a public commitment before God and to one another to live the life that God has called them to live, to live the good life and to, to do what it is that God has spelled out. In other words, they are formalizing an agreement saying we are all in. We are all in individually and we are all in collectively as a community of faith. And what's interesting is that we actually do the same today. We call it church membership. Uh, most churches have some form of church membership. Most denominations, most churches do. Um, yet the, despite that, I, I find that sometimes some people have a, an apprehension about formally or officially joining uh, a church, but we should recognize that membership is actually a very normal part of life. It's how life works. It's very natural and normal. It's a good thing. Um, do you have a membership to Sam's Club? Or uh, maybe uh, you're a member of the Rotary Club, or are you the member uh, a member of the PTA? Are you a member of a country club, uh, or maybe the Mickey Mouse Club? Uh, so you see that membership is just how life functions, and part of the reason why is that membership is about belonging, and we all want to belong somewhere. So maybe I want to belong somewhere where I can shop and get discounts, or maybe I want to belong somewhere where I'm guaranteed a tea time, or I want to belong somewhere where, okay, I can do some good work and, and be part of the community and, and get to know some other people, network, and so forth. So membership, this is how we all operate because we all want to be part of stuff. Um, there is a deep, long desire, a longing in every person to belong to something. And, and ultimately, to belong to something more meaningful than a Sam's Club. Um, and, and this is where there's good news for us. is that God freely invites us to have a free membership in what is something significantly greater and profoundly more significant than uh, anything this world has to offer, grander than any earthly institution, and that is to be a member of his church. A member of the church. God invites us to that. And it is kind of interesting that we are quick to join or to be members of earthly institutions um, and we kind of tend to shy back or, or shrink away from officially joining a church. And there, there are lots of reasons um, different people may have that apprehension. But two that I will share real quick is that first, I think it's because of an inordinate sinful desire that we have to just simply be autonomous. Like we do have this thing in us that wants to be lone wolf, self-dependent, uh, independent, completely on our own. We, we want to express our individuality free from the confines of others. And what we have to understand is that Jesus did not die to create unattached, free-floating Christians. Jesus died to create the church. He died to create the church. 
where real and true individuality comes into its own. Uh, part of finding our identity in Christ is found in relationship to fellow believers. The, the more disconnected we are from a local church, the more confused we actually be, we are about who we are and God and who God created us to be. We find our true individual selves in the context of God's family. Like, I'm Rick Gutierrez. My name is Gutierrez. I am a Gutierrez. But that in and of itself is hard to define and explain if it's not in the context of I am Hector's son. I am Jamie's husband. I am Edie, Ellie, Emmett, Eve's father. That my family membership is defined and comes out and is found as it relates to my relationship within that family. So it's the same way with, with membership. Yes, I am a member of God's family as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Jesus. I belong to the church, but that identity in Christ and that identity in the universal church is fleshed out in relationship to my fellow believers as we covenant together in community. So the, the truth is that I find out who I really am, who God really created me to be, and who Jesus has recreated me to be through faith in the gospel as I flesh that out in community, in, con in the context of my relationships with fellow brothers and sisters in my church. Uh, another reason why some hesitate to join a church is because, quite frankly, we join earthly groups because of what we get out of it. It's the perks that we get out of a certain membership. It's the social status that comes out of it. It's maybe the, the discounts that I get to enjoy as a result. But we know that joining a church is not so much about what we get as much as what we give. And, and I do want to say this, however, that that's not to say that we don't personally benefit from being a covenant member of a church. I mean, clearly we do. Um, what, what's interesting is that the way to blessing is through covenant. That the way that we enjoy God's eternal blessings is by entering into covenant with Him, into relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. So we receive the blessing through covenant. Well, it's the same thing as, as it relates to the church. There are many blessings that God has for us, but they are only enjoyed as we enter into covenant with other believers. So there are massive, countless blessings to being formally a part of a church. But that being, being said, we understand that we join a church, not principally because of what we will get out of it, but because of what we will give and what we will do and how we will serve. And so that's why I believe that today, at least, the better word for us to use is partnership as opposed to membership. We'll, we'll never jettison the, the word membership altogether. We'll still use it. Um, but I want us to think more in terms of partnership. And the reason why is that membership conveys the sense of what I get. 
partnership had kind of a, a verb and action aspect to it. it. It conveys that not only am I a part of something, but I'm taking part in something. I'm, I'm going to be actively involved. There's, there's a part in which I'm investing and I'm giving to something for something greater than myself. I am a partner toward a greater cause. So meaningful church membership ultimately refers to partnering, participation, partnership, and being committed to other believers. For It, it means being a good teammate. It means being committed to own my position in the field. To, to stand in the gap I'm supposed to stand in and do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. It means fulfilling my obligations, owning my role, using my talents. So membership means work. And it's good work. It's right work. It's blessed work. It's about being committed to the things of God and being found trustworthy in those things that my fellow believers trust me and that together now we can do greater things. So we just celebrated our third year as a church and, and now it's time for us to actually formalize our membership. Uh, it's time for us to be like the people were in Nehemiah's day and for us to make an agreement in writing to take an oath and to formally and publicly take a pledge with one another saying this is who we're going to be and this is what we're going to be all about and to do so for the furtherance of the gospel in our own hearts as well as in the hearts of the people around us in our community and in the world. So starting this week, Wednesday evening, we're starting something brand new. We are putting our little small groups as we've done them on the side for a while and we are going to all come together on Wednesday evenings at seven o'clock in our church building uh, for a Bible study and we're calling it our anthemer class call it a membership class a partnership class we can call it a covernership class I call it our anthemer class um, we're going to meet for Bible study and we're going to do what Nehemiah and the priests and the people did. They, they read God's word, they studied it, that it may not just hear it but have understanding that we may all be on the same page, that we may be all tracking in the same direction. I mean, we're Anthem Church, so let's use a, a musical illustration that we may all read off of the same sheet of music. So we're going to be studying the Bible. It'll For some people, it'll be a wonderful Christianity 101. Uh, for people that are uh, new to the faith or people who have never really studied God's Word, this will be a great opportunity for those who are a little bit further along or maybe uh, are quite mature in their faith. We're going to be covering material that will be good for you. So we're going to be pushing the envelope on, on some thoughts and some theology. At the very least, it'll be a really good refresher. So this will be a Bible study for everyone. And so uh, it's not just for only those who want to be members or partners of the church. It's for everyone. Just because you, you're part of this class doesn't mean that you have to join uh, the church by any means. But this is the process that we're implementing toward that means. So uh, what we want to do is open the building up at 630. So if anyone wants to bring dinner uh, for themselves or for their family, we're going to open up the back and you can just eat uh, with your family there. 
because uh, I know that sometimes it could be a little bit rushed trying to get home and what are you going to do so you can pick up something from the from Wendy's or, or, or Hardee's, McDonald's in town, etc. Um, and then at 7 o'clock we'll start. We're going to meet in small groups for the first half of our time together. Uh, and we'll have we'll keep the same small groups throughout this study. So there'll be uh, some connectivity that way. And in the second half of our time together on Wednesdays, there'll be like a small little lecture. Uh, I hate to use that word, but it'll be a, a small little time to, to, to point towards some specific things that we want to bring out in, in the text. And during that small group time, we'll... Uh, be discussing questions and scriptures that we'll assign ahead of time so you have an opportunity to, to be prepared before we even show up on Wednesday nights. So it is going to be great. I'm excited. It allows us to build more community as a church, uh, spend more time with one another. Um, so what we're asking is, uh, if you can, please email Stephanie Bong at info at anthem-church.org. Um, and help us to get a head count. We need to plan accordingly. There's some resources we're trying to put together. We need to know for the sake of uh, child care and so on. So please email. Let us know that you plan on being part of this class. Uh, and we're going to be mirroring the class on Sunday mornings before our worship service. So if someone cannot be part of Wednesday nights, we're going to be doing the same thing on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Uh, and if you're part of Wednesday night and you miss a Wednesday night, you can make up by being part of Sunday morning. But um, we need to understand that church membership is about commitment. Uh, one of the reasons so many churches are anemic in their gospel efforts is because too often too many Christians hold loosely to loose affiliations with one another. And if in a church, the people, whether the leadership and the lay people, if there's not a trust to one another, a commitment to one another, it really hinders what we can do for, for the gospel. If I can't trust people in the children's ministry to do what they're going to do, and I'm not saying that as a pastor, but I'm saying that as a dad. If I, if I can't trust folks in children's ministry to teach my kids well, or trust the people in the music to prepare, or, or trust that my, my, my fellow neighbors aren't going to be on mission. If I can't trust that we're not on the same page, it, it hinders me because then it means maybe I have to do more. Or maybe I, can't, I have to watch my back. Or, or maybe I need to find somewhere else where people are more committed. And so that lack of trust and commitment really hinders a church from doing what it's supposed to do. And the lack of trust is an opportunity for the enemy to come in and cause division in a church. So church membership, partnership, covenantship is all about trust. We need to trust that we are there for one another, that we're committed to one another, that we're together committed to the things of God, that we will strive side by side, use our gifts for the common good. And that is particularly what we're trying to do with Wednesday nights, to show that we are committed to one another, through that actually build trust with one another, that we may do greater things for the sake of God in this world. Uh, in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
don't miss don't miss what that that verse says. It's it's so important. You know, one of the keys to being a witness for Christ comes through our love for one another. Well, what is love? Love is commitment. Love is commitment. Without commitment, there's no love. Without love, there's no commitment. I mean, they're they're really synonyms of one another. It's through our devotion, our affection, our love for one another that the world will know that we are followers of, of Christ. And as Jesus prayed in John 17 earlier, the scripture that I referenced, right, it's as we display our oneness, our unity, as we display our commitment to one another, as we display our covenant love for one another, the world will come to know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is Savior. And this is what we're embarking upon as we enter into this new season in the life of our church, that we would show our love to one another by our commitment to one another that we would build a loving trust for one another, that we would prove trustworthy in the things of God with one another. And if we do that, greater things are possible. We will see and do greater things as a family of faith. So we will come out of this class in a few months and we will have an opportunity to actually sign a covenant together. And some may ask, why, why do we need to sign it? Why physically actually sign it? Because we, we're no different than the people in Nehemiah's day. We need to sign for the same reason that they signed, and that's because of God's greatness and because of God's grace. For we were born in our sin, and we were born in our trespasses. We were spiritually alienated from God to such a degree that we were on a collision course with God's judgment. We were on a collision course with God's righteousness. But God loves us, and so he sent his son, and Jesus came, and he died our death that we may have life. He shed his blood that we may be forgiven of all our sin. He came to deliver us from the tyranny of our own bad decisions, from the tyranny and the oppression of our own immorality. He came to, to have his body broken that not only that we would no longer be spiritually dead, but that we would be filled with his spirit. And having received such a blessing, such a salvation, let us now then make an agreement before God and with one another that we will adhere to the word of God, that we will uphold his truth, that we will defend the doctrines and the theology of scripture, that we will be the pillar of God's word on in this world, and that we would strive for the mission of the gospel in our hearts, discipling each other, building each other up, uh, encouraging one another, teaching each other's kids, teaching one another, and then striving side by side to be witnesses, evangelistic and missional, to share the gospel, not on, just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, at work, at play, with our family members, with our friends, on Facebook, wherever we may be, that we may be those who belong to Jesus. May the world be a better place not only because we belong to Jesus, but because we belong to one another by God's grace. So let's become covenant partners. Let's commit to one another. Let's grow trust with one another that 
greater things for the glory of God may take place. Let's become a covenant community of love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus.